would please turn with me this morning to uh, John chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 13 and go through verse 25. Uh, in your blue Bible, it's page uh, 740. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jewish then responded to him, what sign can you show us to power your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of his body was his body. After he raised from the dead, his disciples um, recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Check one. There we go. Uh, pray with me, if you will. Gracious God, thank you so much uh, for this morning. Uh, thanks for uh, this opportunity to be here, to open your scriptures together, Lord. We just ask that um, in the midst of this time, Lord, that, that, Lord, that you'd be present, uh, that you'd be here. Um, God, that uh, already our hearts would be softened uh, to have what you would say to us this morning. Um, God, we just, uh, we just pray with uh, open hearts and open minds uh, that you do a work this morning. Uh, we love you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, thanks, Jackson, for reading our passage this morning. Uh, if you're not there already, John chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to be in the second half. And uh, we're going to be in this um, kind of situation, this scenario where um, uh, many of you probably are aware of this. If you grew up in church or if you have any background, this is one of those stories that's kind of popular, right? Jesus comes in and he clears the temple, right? And if you watch like a modern day movie about it or something like that, a lot of times Jesus looks like this madman maniac who comes in just whipping everything, kicking over everything violently, um, right? I don't see it this way. Uh, we'll kind of talk about it. Um, I think Jesus was absolutely controlled. Uh, in his anger, if that's in fact what he was, which it seems like he was, uh, right? And uh, uh, so we're going to look at that and really um, just, just uh, to foreshadow where we're going. Uh, this entire encounter is just one big uh, bright blinking sign that, that says that Jesus is in control, right? Jesus is ahead of the game. Jesus is so far ahead of everything going on here. Um, that's what this story tells us, okay? So we're going to unpack it together, all right, um, up to this point in time. Uh, we've been doing our study in, in the Gospel of John, and up to this point, uh, you can tell that John is really uh, uh, starting to, to get into Jesus' ministry, right? Uh, Jesus has recruited some men, some disciples, to, uh, to tag along with him in this. Uh, not only that, uh, as Brett opened up for us last week, we see Jesus do kind of the first 
sign, uh, I guess you could say. In, in uh, the Gospel of John, there's uh, seven miracles recorded. Uh, the signs of Jesus that kind of give way to, uh, to his glory, to his divine nature. Last week was the first one where he turns water into wine, which is a really cool story. But if you remember about that, uh, it was kind of secretive. Right? Jesus um, said, it's not quite my time yet, I'm not going to do that. He kind of let on that he wasn't going to do anything, and then he does. And the only people that knew about it uh, were the servants who were kind of helping him along this, right, when he turns water into wine at the wedding. Right? And as you can imagine, a, a secret like that doesn't stay a secret for long, and so people, um, um, it, it, people uh, fell into belief because of this, right? Uh, verse 11 actually uh, says that the disciples um, believed in him. Because of this sign. Okay, so it didn't stay quiet, um, regardless of if Jesus was really trying to keep it secret or not. But in the second half of chapter 2, what Jesus does is not secret at all. Right? It's pretty overt. Uh, it's pretty out there. It's pretty obvious. Right? And it's very public. Um, it's not a secret at all what he's trying to do. Okay? Um, his words might be a little vague, but his actions were, were pretty out there. All right, so before we unpack it, I just want to ask a question really fast, just mainly for the fun of it. How many of you have ever used this story to justify your own anger? Nobody? You're right, you miss, it. You miss a two-foot birdie putt, and you're like, dang it, and you're mad, right? And then somebody tells you to calm down, and you're like, well, Jesus got mad. Like, I can get mad, right? Isn't, that, isn't there a way to be righteously angry? Even though Jesus wasn't mad about a birdie putt, you know, there's something a little different than that uh, going on here. Right? Uh, he wasn't this madman. He wasn't this, this uh, freakazoid that just comes in, busts on the scene, and, and gets violent with people. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, and even if you try to scrounge for words that even resemble anger, like indignant, and different things like that, uh, you'll find only a handful of times where Jesus is clearly and overtly angry. Not many times will you see it. I think there's a lot of times he was sarcastic, upset, um, um, mystified at how, how stupid some people could be, like the Pharisees, right? But there are a few times where he's overtly indignant, overtly angry, right? I think by his actions, this might be one of those times, okay? But there's some things that we need to learn about Jesus even before we get into this in regards to the way that he handled anger that I think would just be good, some good rules of thumb for us, right? If anybody in here deals with anger at all in your life, Okay, um, like I said, there's only a few times that Jesus gets gang angry in the Gospels, and, and, and it's always in reference to, um, or it's in the face of something, uh, a total misuse, total disregard, total cheapening of something that God has created holy. Okay, um, every time he's angry, that's always the context. And he does it in a way that never contradicts the teachings of the New Testament, to be slow to anger. To not sin in your anger. To not be ruled by your anger. Okay? Um, uh, Jesus kind of laid it out for us. I'm sure he had angry moments outside of what we immediately see uh, in, in the scriptures. But I'm positive that it always had to do with the misuse of what God had intended, had created to be holy. And in this case, and in this context, we're talking about worship. Not the place of worship. Okay? But, but the, uh, the, the heart of worship, all right? So, a few rules of thumb, just based on, on Jesus, right? Uh, if your anger, if you suffer from this, anger, right, issues, if your anger uh, isn't a response to the misuse or the disregard or, or the cheapening of what God has created holy, then it's out of place and worth defeating ASAP, okay? Uh, there's a lot of danger 
uh, in, in misplaced anger. Okay, so if that's not the heart behind it, then, then, then you could probably lobby on the side of just getting over it as fast as possible. Okay, but with that being said, uh, we see that Jesus isn't easily angered. And so if you are more easily angered at other people and their sin than you are your own, then again, better keep your anger to yourself and get over it as fast as possible. Right? And by the way, Christians, this is especially a good rule of thumb in the world of social media. Okay? We don't need more Christians who are, who are quicker to be publicly angry on every social forum than they are to react humbly to sin in their own lives. We don't need that anymore. You're mis misrepresenting uh, the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, so if you can't do that, then just keep it to yourself. Deal with it between you and God or some uh, you know, brother and sister uh, who's close to you. Right? We don't need any more angry, violent Christians uh, on social media uh, misinterpreting uh, who Jesus is for people. Don't need it. All right, uh, John chapter 2, let's look at it, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all uh, from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money uh, changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house uh, will consume me. Okay. As I mentioned before, um, this isn't a madman coming onto the scene uh, uh, being violent at all. Just because he has a whip doesn't mean he's hurting people, right? He used a whip to drive out the cattle, drive out the sheep. Um, imagine, uh, instead of a madman, imagine walking into a room filled with kids, Okay, a big room, and there's, there's open glass everywhere. Okay, there's windows, uh, there, there, there's lights just kind of hanging pretty close, and these kids got balls, and they're like playing kickball or something like that. Okay, you walk in as an adult, you see what's going on, you see the potential danger, right, the fragility of the situation, how easily somebody could possibly get hurt or something could get broken. And so you might walk in, totally disregard how they're going to feel about the situation, grab the ball, grab the bases, move everybody out, and be firm about it. Right? Because it's just not the time or place for it. Right? There, there, there's potential danger in it. Okay? You take control of the room. You take control of the space. That's more of what Jesus is doing here. He's not just being a maniac. He's, he's got control of it. He's taking control of what's going on. Okay? And we're going to see that, that this control goes far beyond just this scenario. Right? He's in control of everything for sure. Right? But that's what he's doing here. He, he, he's taking control of the space of the room. Right. It says here in verse 13 that it was almost time for, for Jewish Passover. Uh, this is important to realize. Uh, the Jewish Passover, probably one of the, the pinnacle celebrations um, of the Jewish faith where, where people remember God's provision for the Israelites when he delivered them from Egypt. Remember that? It's the whole account of the book of Exodus. Okay. Post-Exodus, there was a time in Israel's history uh, where all of the Jewish people, all of God's people were actually driven from their home in Israel, in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're, they're exiled completely because they're taken in captivity, and um, it's another uh, terribly bad situation. But as a result of that, Jews were spread very far, right? They didn't just reside in Israel. They were spread uh, miles and miles and miles away. They became foreigners to their own land, Scripture says, okay? And so it was kind of an annual custom standard procedure that, that Jewish males 
right? Jewish men uh, would, would make a pilgrimage back to the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem, back to the temple uh, at the time of Passover to make sacrifices and to celebrate uh, in the feasts established, right, in the days of Moses under the law. And so what you have are just masses of people in the temple courts. You have a lot of people. If you went to Covered Bridge today uh, or, or yesterday or whatever, Covered Bridge doesn't even scratch the surface of how many people and how crazy and chaotic probably was, you know, the temple courts were. Okay, And so just like every opportunity when people are flooding in from, from foreign lands, just like people do, they exploit the situation, they exploit what was meant to be holy, and they, they decide to start making money off of it. There were people uh, who had money-changing tables. Okay, um, There was a temple tax. And so if you were a Jewish male and you came in, you had to pay uh, a temple tax, but you had to pay it in a specific kind of currency. And so if you're from a foreign land, you probably don't operate by that. And so when you get there, you've got you you to change your money. And so there were people who would do that for them at a really, really high fee, making money off of them. Right? Much like uh, if you were to go to Europe, you know, you'd have to turn your dollars into euros. Right? Imagine doing that and somebody just totally ripping you off. Right? That's what these people were doing to, uh, to these foreigners, right, who were just simply coming to make offerings, to make sacrifices. And not only that... But there were people selling uh, a lot of animals, okay? So if you come from a really foreign land and make the pilgrimage, <clears throat> you know, to the temple, it's not always going to be the most practical thing to, uh, to, you know, saddle up your cattle and your sheep and your doves and to bring them with you. It's not always going to be the most practical thing. And so people started selling them there so you wouldn't have to bring them yourself. Okay, again, making money off the situation, all right? Uh, Jesus wasn't having it. Right, the, uh, the, the animal merchants, the money changers, uh, totally exploited the holy situation, turning it into a market, right, uh, versus uh, 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 an experience um, that was designed to, to truly and genuinely approach God, right? And this kind of symbolizes a deeper how material and exploited religion and worship can become, right? It still happens today. It still happens today. It happens anytime, really, uh, um, when, when ministries form uh, to seek uh, and make money more than to seek and make much of Jesus Christ. It's a real thing. It happens all the time. People are more focused on money. Uh, people flock to personality-based uh, ministries where a, a man, uh, a good-looking man, probably speaks a message of just total fluffiness and feel-good uh, stuff about self-advancement and, and promotion. Right, and then they turn it into a book that makes millions of dollars and nothing of Jesus Christ. You can't exploit the gospel. You can't make money uh, in the way that they're making money. You can't do that, right? Jesus is like, get out of here. This is not it. You're missing the whole point. Excuse me. Get out, he says. My father's house is not a market. Let me make this note. Um, Jesus is not upset at the space of worship. Okay? He's not upset at, at what's going on in this space. What he's upset at is the distraction and ultimately, ultimately the attitude that's being promoted. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, you know, get these cattle out of here because they're scuffing up the floors and they smell bad and we don't need that in the temple. We want this place to be clean. We want it to smell good. They're not saying that. They're saying, he, he's saying get out of here because my father's house uh, is not a market. He's always uh, more concerned with the heart of the worshiper. Right? Not the place, not the space of it. Right? We know this about God. 
I think there is something to say about just having a level of reverence to the space and place of worship. But we know this about God, that he is always more concerned with the heart. Right? Jesus creams the Pharisees over and over again for their showy and fake acts of righteousness. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, God rejects the worship of his people when done uh, in the wrong heart and the wrong attitude. Right? Isaiah 1. This is what God says. He calls their offerings meaningless, their assemblies worthless. He says that he hates with all of his being their festivals and feasts, that they are a burden to him. And that when they pray, he hides his eyes and does not listen. Right? That's, how, that's how God receives worship uh, done in the wrong attitude and the wrong heart. Right? Isaiah 29, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what God says. Their worship of me uh, is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And then Jesus quotes this in Matthew 15, talking directly at the Pharisees. Okay, when we worship God, when we approach God in prayer and obedience, it doesn't matter if you say and do the right things. What matters is why you are doing what you are doing, why you are saying what you are saying, and why, or, I mean, and who you are doing it all for. That's what matters. Okay? Um, and nothing else, if you're here for any other reason than him, God can still use that, but you are totally missing out. In John 4, Jesus says that we need to approach God in spirit <clears throat> and in truth, right? And in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul uh, uh, talks about approaching God uh, mentally with your mind, right? Kind of implying just um, intentionality with your heart of worship towards him. The heart that God listens to is the heart of humility of sincerity, of honesty, of sacrifice, of intentionality, right? This is the attitude of worship. And again, if you are not doing this, then you're missing out. God is the God of redemption, and he can use your fake worship to benefit other people. He's really good at making bad things good. He can do that. You're missing out. That's the harm in it. That's the danger in it, okay? The Jews got this. Um, one thing I love uh, about the mess, the, this passage is that, you know, John is just making it terribly, um, clearly apparent uh, um, that, that, that uh, Jesus is divine in nature. John makes it clear, right? Only someone with the authority of God is qualified to make such a regulating scene at the temple, right? The Jews understood this. Look at uh, uh, verse 18. We know they understood it based on this question. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Okay. Side note here, there's a huge difference between asking for a sign because you, can believe, because you believe he can do it and asking for a sign to test him because you don't believe. There's a really big difference and scripture talks very differently to both of those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22, the Apostle Paul says that Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, who is a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Matthew 12, uh, the Pharisees test Jesus. They're kind of taunting Jesus, really, saying, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus says this, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. The only sign that would be given is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights, and so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Okay. 
we ask for signs all the time. We ask for so, uh, signs of, uh, of God's power, of his healing, of his provision, right? Uh, I've asked for God to, to give some signs a lot this week uh, as we've prayed for uh, people uh, who are hurting and, and need to know that God is there. We ask God to be powerful for them, to, uh, uh, to provide for them, to, to heal them even, right? We ask for signs. It's almost kind of regular uh, in our prayer, right? But the only sign given to those in disbelief is the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's consistent through the New Testament, okay? So how do you think Jesus is going to react, respond to these people who just tested him again with, uh, with the whole request for a sign thing? How do you think he's going to respond? He's going to respond in reference to his death and resurrection. That's the only sign they need to know when you're in disbelief. It's the only sign you need to know. Okay, he lo- uh, look in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple uh, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Sometimes it seems like Jesus just throws these statements out here uh, in the New Testament. Um, uh, statements that are so packed full, I don't think ten sermons uh, would cover it. Right? This statement was so packed that it says that the disciples uh, didn't even understand it until after Jesus rose from the dead. And then it all clicked. Right? Um, um, he, he makes these statements. We don't have time for 10 sermons this morning. Uh, everybody says praise God in their hearts. But I, I do want to give you the nutshell uh, of what he is saying here. First of all, as he says, he's making reference to the temple of his body that's going to be broken. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be ripped apart. It's going to be nailed to a cross. Right? He talks, it says there in verse 21, the temple he had spoken of was his body. <clears throat> his physical body, his flesh, his blood. Right? God became flesh in, in the form of Jesus Christ, and then, and then he, 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 he spilled his blood. His flesh was ripped apart. Uh, he was nailed to a cross on your behalf. We believe this. Okay, that's what he was referring to, his crucifixion. Not only that, though, because in all actuality, because of his sacrifice, because of his death on the cross, he did, in a lot of ways, literally destroy the temple they were referring to. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 uh, through 14, it talks about how Jesus kind of bridged the gap from Old Testament worship and law and uh, temple sacrifices, all that kind of stuff, how he bridged it to what we understand uh, under the new covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. It says, Hebrews 10, 11, day after day, every priest stands uh, and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, uh, which can never take away sins, right? That's the old form. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Okay? Jesus bridges the gap. And because he bridges the gap, he fulfills all of what the old temple and and what it represented, all of the the law and everything that went along with it, he fulfills all of it uh, and in a way destroying it, right? Remember when he's on the cross and the curtain uh, tears, right, in the temple, kind of separating God's presence from the people. He tears it apart because Jesus' death uh, makes us uh, allowed to have a personal relationship with our creator, 
right? Jesus makes uh, a way for that. And so in a very real, real way, he does destroy the temple they're referring to. Right? He destroys the temple sacrifices and the rituals and the ceremonies and all of the things that they had to do to somehow uh, maintain a right place with God because he fulfilled it all. Right? He broke it. He destroyed it. Um, it's awesome. Okay? But it doesn't stop there because he says out of that temple, out of the ashes of that temple, another temple will arise. Right? Three days later, uh, another temple is going to arise. Talking about his body, right? talking about the destruction of, of their form of worship for sure. Um, Ephesians 2 Right? Verse 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul says this in regards to the church. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, another thing uh, that we get from this is that Jesus is foretelling, right? He, he's foreshadowing the temple that will come out of this. He's going to destroy the temple worship and sacrifices and all that stuff. And out of it is going to rise uh, this church under the new covenant of grace. His people, his body, you guys, us, this experience right now. Um, this is what he's talking about as well. There is so much in this one statement, right? The last Part of this statement that I want us to acknowledge is this, and I find it so ironic, because according to the Gospel of Matthew, um, the, this exchange right here, what Jesus says right here about a temple being destroyed and, and rising again, right, this is used to accuse Jesus before his death, and it's also used to mock him while he's on the cross. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke they're called the synoptic gospels, the first three, because they give a good synopsis of, of um, Jesus' kind of life and ministry on earth. Okay, John kind of stands out a little bit, though. It's not considered in there, and a lot of the reason is because there's a lot of different uh, differences between the two, right? One of the differences is this. In all of the other three gospels, um, they have a record of Jesus clearing the temple, but it's in the very last week of his life, where in John... He records the clearing of the temple in, in the first week of his ministry, right? At the very beginning of his earthly ministry, John records this scenario. Another difference is that in the synoptics, it doesn't uh, refer to some of the things that uh, it refers to here in John. And John is the only one that acknowledges this statement right here. Destroy this temple and I will rise it again in three days. Okay. The other three Gospels, nothing's wrong with them, by the way. But when you read through those, you come to this conclusion that this statement, that, right? Matthew and Mark both quote this, by the way, um, um, as Jesus is dying, right? And so we get this statement and we associate it with his crucifixion, with his death, right? It's a false accusation that they used against him. However, in John, John makes it a point to, uh, to bring it to the forefront, that at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, right, he says this. In the other Gospels, you're going to read this ahead. All this is telling me is that John is just doing what John is doing, and he's leaving no doubt that Jesus was in absolute control this whole time. Right? I find it so cool, so ironic that, uh, that this is the case. By the way, uh, this doesn't mean that there's contradictions within the Gospels. What it means is I think Jesus probably cleared the temple twice, if not more times. They're two different experiences, two different occasions. 
okay? It's not unreasonable to think that this was probably a regular thing for Jesus to show up at the temple and not be happy with what was going on and to start turning tables and, and, and removing the animals. It might have been a regular custom for him. I don't know, okay? So there's, there's no contradiction. There's just two occurrences where it happens. But here's the thing. Jesus knew that they would use this statement to falsely accuse him, and he still said it, and he said it early in John. I love that. Jesus was so ahead of the game. There are times in John where it literally seems like, like Jesus is saying things and doing things because he's trying to dig his own grave. And very, he very well might be doing it because he knew he was going to walk out three days later. See, we get that in the Gospel of John. There is no doubt who is in control. Right? He didn't just have authority to make such a, a regulating scene in the temple courts. He has the authority over death itself, making it impossible to deny that he is God himself, worthy of the most genuine and authentic forms of worship that you can muster. Not because you have to under compulsion, uh, or, or because you'll get creamed if you don't, or because you'll get a gold star if you do, but because he is king, he is Lord, he is the Almighty, and he sacrificed it all for you. I think he's worth it. Right? He doesn't want uh, your religious habits and mindless singing. He wants your heart. And you might fool everyone. When it, comes, uh, when it comes to this, but you cannot fool him. He knows your heart better than you do. Okay, look ahead, John 2, uh, as we close the chapter. 23, verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Okay, um, there's a large difference uh, between belief of the eyes, you know, you see the signs, you see something cool, uh, you see kind of what it can do for you, big difference between that and, and belief of the heart that goes with full surrender, that endures not just the good times, but also the grit of life when things aren't cool and when things aren't going your way. It's a big difference between those two things. Right? In John chapter 8, we see a group of Jews uh, uh, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and by the end of the chapter, they're trying to kill him. They're stoning. They're trying to stone him. Right? Jesus slips away, it says. Right? If you think about Jesus riding in uh, to, Roos to Jerusalem in, in the last week of his life, right? he had floods of people praising his name, welcoming, welcoming him into the city. Right? And, and then days later, they're, they're calling for his execution. That doesn't make sense. How can that be belief at all? It's just belief in what sounds good, what looks good. That's it. That's the level of it. And Jesus knows that, right? Of course Jesus isn't going to entrust himself to people based on that kind of belief. All right. So one of our questions for this morning, all right, I, I know this place. I work here. I serve here. Um, we have uh, some of the most gifted musicians um, that I, I've ever seen, right? Brandon and Grace are, are severely limited here. They, they, they can do so much more, but they are serving here because they are so talented. Um, it's amazing, right? Brett, Pastor Brett, one of the most gifted speakers that I've ever heard of. But here's my question. As captivating as it might be, does your belief go deeper than what sounds good? Does your belief go deeper than your immediate experience and what we can do for you and, and that sort of thing? Does your belief go deeper than that? Is it full surrender to Jesus Christ himself? 
so that when things don't sound good, right, and when Adam has to preach, I can still figure something out. I can still get something from the Lord, right? By the way, barring the drummer, when I said good musicians, discount that guy. Everybody else is a really good musician, okay? How are you approaching God these days? Where is your heart when we sing these awesome songs to him? Where is your heart when you sing to him? Where is your mind when, when we open the scriptures together? Where have you been the last 30 minutes? Right? Where is your heart and your mind outside of Sunday morning? That's probably an even more important question. Right? Where are you outside of this? If you're a believer in the room today, I'm sorry, I don't have some, some crazy, uh, huge, uh, uh, you know, thought for you to leave with or anything outside of this. That if you are um, in him, but you are coming here for any other reason than him, and if you are doing things outside of here for any other reason than him, then I'm telling you, you are missing out on something. You are missing out on him. You are missing out on what he has for you. And my guess is that you know it. <clears throat> don't let finite things distract you from the eternal God. Right? I don't care what the list is, if it's sports or if it's you know, your petty love interest or if it's the American dream or whatever it is, if you let it distract your heart and mind from him, you're missing out. You're missing out. This goes for Sundays. This goes for every day. <clears throat> All I request of you is that you humble yourself before him, that you give him your lists Give him your priorities. Give him uh, your choice time. Tell me that he doesn't fulfill you more than you've been trying to do yourself. He will. If you are here and you can't honestly say that you believe, you don't know what you believe, then I want to take the same approach that Jesus did. And I want nothing more for you today beyond knowing that God the creator of all things, that he came to earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, that he lived humbly, he died miserably to make a way to God for you. Jesus is the way to God, he is God himself, and believe it or not, he has a love and a grace and a passion and a desire and a purpose for you that will blow you away if you believe in God, that he died for you, that he defeated death for you, and if you fully surrender your life and heart to him. Do this today, please. If you need help, we're going to sing one more song later in, in just a minute. I'll be up here. I'm going to, I'm going to skip the drumming part, okay, just to be up here. Come talk to me. Uh, um, I would love to introduce you to this, uh, to this Savior, okay. Um, if you want to do this in your own heart, praise God. Let us know if you do this uh, so we can celebrate with you and so we can uh, oh, ta you know, take steps with you as you begin this new journey in your faith with Jesus Christ. This is what he wants for you. He doesn't want fake. He doesn't want off, uh, um, um, this genuine worship. He doesn't want anything other than your heart. And when you give that to him, he's going to change your world. Let's pray. God, as the, uh, as the team comes up, God, I just pray um, that as we prepare for this moment uh, of worship once again, um, in, in view of your scriptures and in view of what you've done for us, God, that you would make this a moment of total, unified, undistracted worship to you because of who you are and what you've done for us. God, bring our minds and our focus upon you solely in this moment. God, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, they don't know what to believe about you, <clears throat> God, I pray um, that you just 
soften their hearts to receive the truth of your death, the truth of your resurrection, and how it's all offered for them. God, that they would give their hearts in full surrender to you today. God, for any believer in here who can honestly just be honest before you and, and admit that they've been uh, terribly distracted from you uh, to the point that even whenever they come into the context of, uh, of corporate worship, um, God, that they're just, they're not there. They're not in view of you. They're not focusing on you. Uh, their mind is on everything else. God, I pray that you make a way for them uh, to come out of that pattern and, and those habits. God, that you would embolden them to make sacrifices so that they can live uh, deeper uh, for you, Lord. That, that all of their priorities and all of their checklists, God, that you would become the top of all of them. And that everything else under that, God, that you would just bring fulfillment into it in a way that they've never experienced. God, we, we commit uh, the work um, uh, of your word to you fully. God, do a work in our hearts this morning. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You give life. You are love. You bring life to the dark.